You are listening to the Visualizing War podcast. In each episode, we talk about representations of war in art, text, film, and music. With new guests each time, we look at how people have described or imagined war in different periods and places, and we discuss the impact which war stories have on us as individuals and societies. Hello, my name is Alice Koenig. And my name is Nicholas Vieter. And we co-direct the Visualizing War project at the University of St. Andrews. Our guests today are Susan Werby and Kirsten Volnes. Susan is a researcher, dramaturg and librettist. Interested in visual memory, she was recently executive producer of a multimedia theatre piece called Messengers of a Bitter Truth, created during the centenary commemorations of World War I. It used archive film footage, photographs and artwork, as well as drama and dance, and especially written musical score, to get audiences thinking about how we tend to remember World War I, and to shake up those habits of remembering and commemorating, particularly capturing the human costs of war on both sides of that conflict. More recently, she's focused on words more than images, working with fellow librettist Kate Holland and composer Kirsten Volnes to create an opera also focused on World War I, entitled Letters You Will Not Get, Women's Voices from the Great War. As we'll hear, Susan's interest in words has come together brilliantly with Kirsten's interest in soundscapes. Kirsten's music is inspired by nature, myth and socio-political issues, and she's been commissioned to compose for a really wide range of projects, from traditional symphony orchestras to homeless advocacy groups and a lecture series on astrophysics. She's currently visiting assistant professor of music at Reed College in Portland, and like Susan, has a strong interest in multimedia performances, which bring different creative arts together and intervene in positive ways in local communities. Susan and Kirsten, it's a real pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome and thank you very much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you for having us. So we've got lots of questions to put to you about representations of war through music and about your interest in amplifying often unheard voices on conflict. But I wonder if we can start with you, Susan. Perhaps we can start by asking you about your research on the ways that we typically remember and represent World War One. I. I think you've done quite a lot of research on this. So in your experience, it would just be interesting to know what themes and trends tend to dominate and whose voices we tend to hear when we think back and visualize World War One. Well, my first introduction to the First World War was a biography of Rupert Brooke. And I was so taken with his life and certainly with his poetry and how it represented the British upper class experience during the First World War and how he embraced the war. And of course, he very sadly died early on on the way to Gallipoli, so never had the opportunity to experience the battles that, that he envisioned. After Rupert Brooke, I read a great deal of British poetry, all written by men, and then came across the seminal work of Paul Fussell, The Great War in Modern Memory, which was an extraordinary book and remains an extraordinary book. But what occurred to me as I was reading it, that there were voices missing. Specifically, there were women's voices missing. I read two women who had experienced the war two British women, Lady Cynthia Asquith, her war diaries, and also Vera Britton's Testament of Youth. And I found them both extraordinarily powerful. And I went from there to starting to read about other women. And what really occurred to me, and it became more and more evident, particularly as the centenary approach, was we tell the story of World War I 
through the lens of white European men on the Western Front. And typically we do that. Obviously there have been films like Gallipoli and others, but it has been in the main a white male experience, a white European male experience. And for me, what makes the war so interesting is the history of the war is so important to look at it through multiple lenses, looking at it through women's experiences and women's experiences on both sides of the conflict. And that's what really struck me when I started doing the research for the Great War Theater Project, Messengers of a Bitter Truth, using both sides of the conflict that if you didn't know the nationality of each soldier, you wouldn't be able to tell that nationality from the soldier's writing. So this war specifically, in my opinion, brings people together in a very common experience, even as they are fighting each other, if obviously if they're men. That's really fascinating, Susan, um, not just trying to amplify women's voices, but as you say, trying to show the, the sort of the collective, the united experience in, you know, so many narratives of, of war generally of World War One polarize the experiences and, and your research and, and your work has been trying to bring them together. Absolutely. And when I started researching the script for Messengers of a Bitter Truth, I looked at women's experiences much more deeply than in the original dance project I was involved with. And they were women from Britain, they were women from France, they were women from Germany, they were women from the United States. And again, my sense was there was a commonality of experiences and whether they were mothers or lovers or daughters or friends, they sounded very, very similar. And that has always been the vision for all of these pieces, all of these performance pieces, is that the, there is a universality of experiences. So whether you're on the side of the Germans and the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, or whether you're from France or what was Great Britain or the United States or Canada, you have very, very similar experiences. And some women embraced the war, as we bring out in the libretto, and some women were incredibly opposed to the war, and some people just got on with and hoped to get to the end of it somehow intact. So really two parts to the project in a way. One is breaking down this kind of strong opposition that so far has dominated the, the narratives of the war. And you're saying that you can see how all of the soldiers on all different sides had very common experiences, but also bringing in new voices, previously unheard voices. I think that to me, that's interesting because it, it chimes with what seems to be going on in, in our generation as, as we are thinking about World War One where you'd think, oh, this is the oldest of the two big wars of the last century, and it's been a long time. Is there really anything new to be said about this? But actually, we are currently involved in a project of really rewriting the ways in which we think about World War I from all these different perspectives. And I think that's probably also a clue for us, this idea of bringing different perspectives into dialogue with each other. And Alice, I think you were saying one of the other podcast interviews that we did, that at the centenary commemoration of the First World War here, There was a project also that looked at the non-white British participants uh, in the war. So um, I, 
I think this is uh, this is such an amazing project that's you know it's it's part of a larger whole by which we are rethinking how we approach World War One. Yes, absolutely. The the project you mentioned, Nicholas, is Danny Boyle's Pages of the Sea project, which was particularly for coastal communities around the UK to think about all the people who left the UK to go and fight, and many of whom didn't come back. And I think that one of the striking things for the, of the of the centenary commemorations was, as you say, Nicholas and Susan, the way in which it's not simply reinforced our existing memories of World War One, but really, really transformed them or prompted us to dig deeper. Kirsten, have you had experience of that in terms of sort of digging deeper into those memories, those habits of looking back on World War One? Certainly. I mean, I learned so much about different roles that women played. And I mean, just being able to read their individual accounts of their lives and the variety of things that they're going through, but also, like Susan said, the universality of their experience, all suffering together, is really fascinating to me. And I think it's really important right now, I think, as well, to look back at this moment, because like you said, so many things are resonating yet again, whether it's our celebration of the 100 years of women having the right to vote in America, and then wait, we have to dial that back and realize that that was only white women, and they fought very hard to keep it only white women. And so I think... Just being able to expand the conversation to include new perspectives uh, that better represent the entirety of the humanity that went through this is critical to how we reflect on our own lives today. One thing that I think is so interesting, the difference between how the United States thinks about World War I and how other combatant nations think about the war. The historian Jay Winter calls the World War I history in this country, the Forgotten War. And I think that's a very apt way of describing it. So we look in the United States at the Civil War. We then jump over World War I. We look at World War II. And then we look at the Korean War a little bit and then really focus on Vietnam. So World War I is really the Forgotten War. And people who are incredibly well-educated. If you ask them about the war, even when it started and when it ended, they often don't know, and they know very little about it. And yet 117,000 plus American soldiers were killed in the First World War. Building on what Kirsten said about voices that have not been heard and uh, experiences of people of color and I was so eager to include I Sit and Sew by Alice Dunbar Nelson that Kirsten has set incredibly powerfully to music, who was a Black American poet. She was a political activist. And her poem is so powerful because it really addresses the experience, the Black experience in the First World War. And the fact that Black American soldiers did go and fight and did die, but they are missing from the war's narrative in this country until very, very recently. Not only rethinking how we think about World War One, but also working on putting World War One kind of more prominently on the of collective memory, which is an equally exciting element of your project. Also, I mean, build, building on your on your answer, uh, you already mentioned one of the letters. So that takes us to the, the current project, the letters you will not get. And I was just wondering whether you could tell us and our listeners a bit more about uh, how that project came about. 
what prompted it. Also, how did you two get involved uh, in the project and doing it together? When I was doing the research for Messengers of a Bitter Truth, I was so struck with the rich amount of material of women's writings. And while we had men and women in that theater piece, I felt that women's songs and women's thoughts and women's experiences had not fully been explored. And I was so interested in doing that. And so I started doing more research just on women's experiences, again, on both sides of the conflict. And I gathered literally a basket of possibilities. And they were letters, but they were also journals, poetry, memoirs, novels, all women from both sides of the conflict, looking at some artists like Kata Kolwitz, the German artist, through her writing. And I took it to Kate Holland, my co-librettist, and we fashioned a first draft of a libretto. And Kate's theater background really allowed us to, allowed her to what I call play with text. And it is only when text is in the public domain, I hasten to add, that you can play with it, as it were. And taking, as an example, and I know we're going to hear it later, Dear Alice, which is the first song in the opera, and introducing a variety of women. And it's little bits that Kate took, excerpted from different letters. And uh, can I just follow up on this before I'd like to hear more also about how Kirsten came onto the project. The, where did you find all this poetry? Because I, I'm just thinking about, you know, what, what would I do if I wanted to dig into this and I wouldn't know where to look. So how did you go about finding the material? Well, I'm delighted to say that in the last, oh, at least 20 years, mostly women scholars have done an extraordinary amount of research and publishing and creating anthologies about women's writings. Just to mention too, Margaret Egonet, who is an American scholar, wrote an extraordinary, edited an extraordinary book, Lines of Fire, Women Writers of World War I. And that's where we found a German nurse. That's where we found several women of color. I also looked at a, a fascinating blog behind their lines, T-H-E-I-R. And that's done by Connie Rusick, who's an American scholar as well. And it is now an amazing anthology. And it's really mostly about lost voices of the First World War. And that's where I found Alice Dunbar Nelson. But I also went to libraries. I was fortunate enough to go to archives at Balliol College in Oxford and read a family journal that sadly did not get in. But there are a number of resources and they are extraordinary. And I think they're becoming more and more available and more and more known, which I think is, is important. Sounds like an amazing project in itself, just doing the research, not to speak of then putting it together and create an opera out of it. There is something, especially with primary source research, and this was mainly secondary, but sitting with a letter that you know was written over a hundred years ago and being able to touch it and being able to see how someone's handwriting really makes it live. And that is something that is not only extraordinarily exciting, 
it also feels like a privilege to be allowed into people's experiences. So Susan, it sounds like you've done amazing research and then there was this um, creative uh, process afterwards and you brought Kirsten in on that. So Kirsten, it would just be great to hear how you came in on the project. Yes, I was invited into this project um, by one of the singers who was involved from the very beginning. Her name is Caitlin McKechnie and she runs a group called Opera Cowgirls and they take all sorts of standard opera repertoire and play it in with guitars and ukuleles and you know turn it into like this folky medley um, and they do a really interesting job of genre bending I guess I would call it <laughs> in that regard and I had written a song cycle for Caitlin a few years prior and we really enjoyed working together so when Caitlin had heard about this project from Kate Holland, the co-librettist. Um, they invited me to take a look and see if I wanted to be part of it. So I'm stumbling upon an incredible opportunity, <laughs> essentially. That's how I feel about it. And it's an all-women team, isn't it? Yes. We did have some men helping us with um, recording our demos this summer. I would say it's 98% women so far. <laughs> and it started as a 9 song song cycle and was premiered in New York in December of 2018 and then American Opera Project which is a Brooklyn-based opera company approached Kirsten and asked if she would be interested in expanding it and creating a chamber opera and of course we jumped at the opportunity to do more work on it. Kirsten, perhaps you could just talk us through the structure of the, the bigger piece then as it's expanded. Sure, I'd be happy to. Um, so it opens with Dear Alice, which is the first uh, song in the cycle or in this opera. Uh, and that's the one we talked about earlier where different women's voices have one line that appears and then someone else comes in. And so it's this collage of introducing different characters and perspectives. And at the end of that song, they all sort of come together and sing this final chorus in harmony together. But that particular song is one of the more operatic songs in the piece. And from there, it shifts more to shorter pieces that are maybe two or three minutes long, that are poems. Um, it actually goes from the beginning of the war to the end. So the layout is chronological. But there's not really a narrative in place. It's more like vignettes that we get to see from people's lives and the mood changes. I feel like Susan and Kate have done such a wonderful job of shaping, like I think there are three waves to the piece overall that uh, build up to this moment of tension and drama and then it sort of lightens up again and we build up again to something very intense. Um, so one thing I really appreciate about this collection of songs, there are 21 in all in the full opera, is that some are very intense and very serious and very, what you might expect from a war opera. And some are totally lighthearted and almost naive and, you know, show that these are still young people <laughs> living their lives um, and that there is joy to be found even in the most horrible of situations. So I think all in all, it spans a wide variety of scenes and activities and all sorts of little glimpses into people's lives that wash over you in this interesting sort of way. And, and you've talked about the fact that these are women on both sides of the conflict, women of different colours and so on, and also women with very different roles. So nurses, munitions workers, mothers, daughters, wives, all sorts of different, different kinds of women are represented. That's right. And a lot of it has to do with 
you know, speaking about the individual experience, but also how they relate to each other. So I would say that the pieces that are more lighthearted are probably more individual perspectives, I would say. <laughs> the ones that are more intense are probably more of the collective experiences, working in the factory or whatever it is. But there are also a couple of pieces that are almost in dialogue with one another. Uh, there is a song called Socks, based on a text by Jesse Pope, that talks about a woman essentially knitting socks for, for the cause, but also as a way of keeping herself from going completely insane. Um, I'm just going to focus on my knitting and I'll get through this somehow. And then later we have I Sit and Sew, which is Alice Dunbar Nelson's approach to sewing, right? She's sitting there and for her, it's more of a, a frustration that like she's stuck here doing this instead of what she actually wants to be doing toward the war effort. So I thought it was really great to have these connections coming back through the different stories. And Susan and Kate did a really great job of making it feel very coherent, even though it goes all sorts of different places and pretty quickly <laughs> between them. One thing we did, which I think is unusual, as I understand it, is these are, all these women are archetypes. So rather than Mimi in La Boheme, there are mothers and daughters, as I mentioned before, there are factory workers, as you said, Alice, and all sorts of other women. And the singers have done the most extraordinary job of embracing this unusual way of doing an opera so that you, the through line is the war. But every time the song comes, it's not the same character. So how you figure that out and whether as a performer you have a backstory, which I know that the actors in Messengers of a Bitter Truth decided to create backstories, but it was that same kind of approach, that is to say archetypes rather than characters with names. And we think it works really well. That very nicely links with another question I wanted to ask, which is exactly about this element of your opera, the fact that we're dealing with real voices. So you're not working with a, a stock of characters, as you were saying, sort of the, the typical distribution of roles, the typical kind of character features. You get real voices here. And also you have limited possibility to shape those voices. If you create an opera and a libretto out of just, you know, your ideas, it's a fictional libretto, then of course you can give the characters whatever songs, whatever words you want. But with the real voices, that's very different. So you, you engage with those differently. So I guess I wanted to ask about that process a little bit. So how close did you stay to the original words? How did you shape the letters? And Kirsten was already saying some of these clearly uh, are in dialogue with each other. Was that intentional? Is this something that just sort of came out of the finished product? So just, you know, this, this process of working with those real voices is something I'm quite interested in. When we were creating the libretto, we took a variety of sources, as we mentioned before, letters, journals, novels, poetry, and Kate and I put it together in the way it felt correct. So yes, people talking to each other, and certainly in Dear Alice, it does feel very much as if women are talking to each other, and that was Kate's intention. In the munitions piece that we have that's taken from oral history that we were given permission from the Imperial War Museum, again, you get the sense that these women are sharing 
their experiences in the munitions factory during the war. One thing that was really important that we felt we had to respect the integrity of the meaning of the work. And what I mean by that, I'm thinking specifically of May Wedderburn Cannon, and we have a poem of hers. And she was a British poet. She worked through the war. She was, um, she came from the Oxford literary and academic aristocracy, if you will. And she was always in support of the war. And she said at one point in the, towards the end of her life, I went to war with Rupert Brooke and I could not come back with Siegfried Sassoon. And so we had to really respect the fact that here was someone until the end of her life believed in the war, believed in why the war happened, believed it was necessary for people to go and fight. And the man that she was engaged to, who very sadly made it through the war and then died of influenza in the pandemic in February of 1919. And yet she continued to support the war effort. Then there's someone like Kata Kolvet who had two sons, both of whom were in the war. The youngest one came to her and begged her to intercede with his father to allow him to enlist. And Kolvitz did that. Her son, Peter, went off and he was killed quite quickly, actually. And so that's such an interesting juxtaposition. But it really was thinking dramatically what worked and also who did we want to represent? So we did want to represent both sides of the conflict. We also wanted to ask two questions. And through these women's words, we wanted to at least put the questions out there for the audiences that will hear this eventually when the pandemic ends. And one is why this war and ultimately why war? And those two questions have underlined all the projects that I've worked on. And uh, um, Kirsten, um, is that right? So you came in uh, once the libretto was already done. And did you then kind of reshape the libretto in light of your ideas for the music? Or were you inspired by the libretto and the music came out of that? Uh, I definitely read through the libretto and all of it sounded great to me. So I had no edits to ask for, really. I tend to write music when I'm setting text. I tend to let everything pour out of the text itself, if that makes any sense. Mm -hmm. So in this case, I felt like there was already an emotional and energetic arc to the piece. I think what was most important was sitting down with Susan at the beginning and talking about each poem or each text and really getting a sense of who this woman was and what her backstory was and is she being ironic here or not? And, you know, like, um, or maybe the, the point of that is that we don't know whether she's being ironic or not. And uh, so just having those conversations really helped me shape my ideas for the music. And all of it came directly from the words themselves. Can I follow up, Kirsten, with you on that? You mentioned earlier when you were describing the sort of the arc of the opera that some of it sounds tragic. And I think you used a phrase like, you know, a bit more like the war music that we might expect, and then some of it is lighter. So I suppose I just want to sort of dig into that a little bit and ask you about 
the the war music perhaps that's influenced you in the past um war music that you think evokes war particularly well um and what kinds of styles you were wanting to avoid as much as wanting perhaps to capture yourself yeah good question i think because the characters are archetypes i was approaching these texts as more like folk songs or popular songs especially because they're so short and so direct. Um, I really wanted it to be about the singers and what they're saying in most of the songs. So a lot of times there's really simple accompaniment in the string quintet that accompanies them. It's really meant to just get across the ideas that the women are speaking about. And uh, in terms of influences beyond that, I actually tried not to specifically reference different cultures' music (laughs) because they were supposed to be um, from all sides of the conflict and you weren't supposed to tell who was who. So uh, in that regard, I avoided writing the Irish text using Irish musical idioms and that kind of thing. I actually drew upon a lot of American popular music from after the war, you know, like all of the jazz and all the music I care about anyway now and listen to a lot um, that influences the rest of the music I write. So in that regard, it, I think, is mostly rooted in African-American musical traditions. And so you'll hear a lot of blues scales coming out in places and um, other sorts of uh, there's a the I sit and sew song that we're going to talk about later is very much influenced by like a 50s shuffle like Fats Domino kind of a tune. And so um, I think making these direct references to music people recognize might help frame these uh, historical texts in a way that they can relate to more directly. And in terms of musical influences, um, I actually avoided going to listen to a lot of music influenced by war because I didn't want it to shade my approach in any way. Or, um, But I think of things right off the top of my head, like Penderecki's Threnody for the Victims of Hiroshima as one of the most striking pieces I've ever heard <laughs> that seemed to fit. And I totally quote it in one of the pieces. Um, it makes an appearance. Some somehow. And then the other one I think of is Britain's War Requiem, because you have the full orchestra and the whole chorus when the texts are in Latin. And then when the English texts come in, it's more of a smaller ensemble. It's more intimate. It's more, I think it's more casual in some ways, or it's meant to be more of a folky atmosphere versus the epic nature of the Latin. So those would be two examples I might point to. I've got a follow-up question perhaps for both of you, which is that the obviously the libretto determined which songs were going to be solo, presumably, and which were going to be multi-part. Did some of those decisions change when you started setting the music and thinking, do you know what, I think we need you know, the sound of more voices or the sound of voices in dissonance rather than voices in unity here? How did that end up getting shaped? Yes, a few of the songs involve all six of the singers, uh, either in turn or in the collage, the first song. Um, So in that regard, I already knew all six of them would be involved somehow, and that might contribute to more of a chorus at the end. But there are other songs that are just individual solos where other singers appear as backup singers. I think of the end of The Dancers, there's actually a improvisatory section where there's a little vamp that happens at the end as we sort of like a fade out. And all the other singers just sort of improvise around it, singing oohs and ahs. And she's singing, we dance, we dance each night. And so I really wanted to make it more of a playful atmosphere where they can play music together without having to be on book. And, you know, I wanted that sort of 
um, experience to come through a little bit in a very rigid structure otherwise. <laughs> Uh, so that's one example. But I think a lot of times I brought the other voices in to reinforce what the person was saying, to be more of a collective voice. There's not a lot of times where they're in, in conflict with one another. Um, they might even kind of like a hype man shout shout out whatever the person just said, <laughs> you know, um, like to reinforce something, like a little amen here or there. Yeah, but I would say primarily when they when they sing together, they are singing together to be a unified force. And also building on what Kirsten said, Kate and I felt very strongly that it was so important to have a contemporary composer take this text and set it to music, which Kirsten has done so incredibly powerfully and so beautifully, because we think that there are so many themes coming out of the First World War that resonate today. And as much as I have enjoyed listening to British war songs written in World War I and set to music then, for me somehow it then is set back then. And we wanted audiences in the 21st century to make the connections between the themes coming out of the First World War and how they impact us today. I think after we've spoken so much about the words and the music, this is probably a good moment to actually listen to some of the um, some of the music, some of the opera. Um, and I think we have um, a bit from the opening song that we'd like to play now. And then um, we're hoping you can tell us a bit more about what's going on in this piece and pull out some of the threads that come together in it. The opening song of the opera called Dear Alice is actually quite a long piece, so we're going to play two short clips of it. The first is the very opening of the song where we hear different women's voices writing a series of letters to loved ones. I should also just mention that listeners can access the opera um, in a much fuller way by going to the American Opera Project website where there are some great recordings. Dear Alice. My dear father, I must write So here's the next bit. How I would like to be able to go and find you and bring you 
back with me how I would like to be able to go and I do and bring you back me when will this war end it's all so very So really a complex piece of music, even within this one piece, there's a lot of interaction going on. So it would really be great to hear from you sort of unpack this and pull out some of the threads that kind of come together in this complex, amazing piece. There are a lot of voices, absolutely. And it's a way that we introduce our archetypes. So again, we have daughters, wives, mothers, friends, both sides of the conflict. Dear Alice is the beginning of a letter by a young woman, Nora Saltonstall, who came from a very wealthy Boston family who went over to nurse in 1918 with the American Expeditionary Force. And then we have European women. We have a French factory worker. We have a German nurse. We have a young Sikh girl from the Punjab region of India. We have Black American women, two women, Addie Hunton and Katherine Johnson, who co-authored a book, Two Colored Women with the American Expeditionary Force after the war. So it's really a rich grouping, a tapestry of voices that are woven together that introduce women and how they experienced the First World War. And it was definitely the most challenging song to write in that regard, because it keeps changing so quickly, right? Um, so I tried to find a way to frame each little phrase in its own sound world, but also connect them in a way that made sense, so it didn't feel completely fragmented. Um, the tremolo thing you heard, like with all the strings just scrubbing away, comes back a number of times in the piece, and that's often when we get to points of conflict. And I actually, in hindsight, think of it sort of as the sound of a mechanical plane engine kind of drumming away. Just that, the idea of cacophony, just like being in this space that you cannot main contain <laughs> is something I was going for. So sometimes the music becomes more textural and atmospheric and is meant to be more of a like setting rather than uh, a more traditional accompaniment. 
And as Nicola said, the words and the music come together so brilliantly and it's got so many different shades of light and dark as the voices come and go and you you, you have all these different voices. But even in that first, that opening song, Susan, the voices come together, don't they, towards the end to ask essentially one of the questions that you said the whole opera wants to pose, which is why war, why this war, when will this war end? And that's really powerful. And I think that takes me on to one of the one of the next songs, another song early in the opera, which really struck me, which was the song Women of Europe. And that calls on women on both sides to raise their voices to stop war. Poignantly, at one point, it asks, where is your voice that should be sowing seeds of peace? And again, it's very urgent music, urgent instrumental music um, uh, underpinning that as well. So, Susan, is this is this song, we'll listen to it in a second, but is this song, in a sense, a meta commentary on all the voices in the opera? It certainly represents my own philosophy. But I think, again, as I mentioned earlier, that we wanted to respect different views of the war and different philosophies of the war and how people either embraced the war or did not. But what I love about this song is it is a call to women to recognize that they have agency and that they can make a difference and that they can change the course of history. And this was a speech that was given at a women's peace conference in Belgium in 1915. And it is so strong and so powerful. And it resonated with the women there. Obviously, we know it didn't stop the war. But I think it is representative of the change that was happening. Kirsten talked about women's suffrage again, white women's suffrage that came into being in, in 1920 in this country. And there was an enormous amount of change going on in the early 20th century. And I think this really speaks to it. So here comes Women of Europe. That's the call to the American women to 
think about what they need to do. You might have noticed one of those prominently placed blues scales at the end that I was talking about before. <laughs> I just wanted to ask about the emotional impact of the music, because one of the things that comes out very clearly out of the, the just two samples that we've just listened to is the you have this kind of juxtaposition of more reflective parts, more lyrical parts, but also some really very strong, powerful parts. And uh, often they change quite quickly. So you really kind of take the listener in and you take them on almost a roller coaster ride of different emotions. So I guess what I wanted to ask about is what kind of emotional response were you hoping for? Is this something you were considering very strongly as you were composing? Because obviously you, you said one of the things that paramount to you is uh, just going with the text and, you know, work with what's in the text. But obviously then there's also the other side of the whole process that the people who will listen to this. Emotions and music, I guess, is my, my question. I'd like to, to hear more about this from you. Yeah, for this particular song, I was, I said it as a, I think it's labeled coloratura punk at the beginning, because it's meant to be like a punk song, you know, very much a bold statement of resistance, you know. And so in this case, Like her original call is in a more normal vocal range, but when she sings the line, millions of women's hearts blaze up in anguish, I wanted her to go the second time she goes up to a C sharp and the violin carries it with her. And I really wanted that to just devolve into almost screaming at the top uh, mm -hmm. because she's so frustrated and wants you to listen to her. Um, similarly, when she sings very high, the word suffering, are you only great at patience and suffering? It, the first time it's more of an indictment and the second time I use like a major third resolution. So it's almost like she's defeated in some ways. <laughs> it sinks in instead of saying, hey, are you only doing this? It's like, are we only doing this? Uh. <laughs> I was imagining the character going through different emotions while singing these lines. And I tried to use that as a guide. Kirsten, you mentioned the fact that it's, you know, as, as the song goes on, she sounds deflated and, you know, it slows up, it it quietens down and then, then there's this call again. I suppose, Susan, that made me think back to something you were saying a little bit earlier about staying really authentic to the text, wanting to make sure that the libretto was really honouring what the original writers were trying to say, not simply reusing their words. So, I suppose a question that's a sort of flip question from one of the ones Nicholas asked earlier about how the words match to the music. Have there been moments when you've come to Kirsten's music and you've said, look, you know, you've, you've actually guided her on what music you think would honor the text or has that been purely down to Kirsten's interpretation? I, I just wondering what input you've had on the musical side. It's a great question. The answer is, as Kirsten said before, she and I met in Providence, Rhode Island back in 2018. And we were doing the song cycle at that point. And I said, here is the libretto. And what I'd really love would be a cello and a violin. And over to you. Kate and I had never worked on an opera. And we had such faith in Kirsten, who, as she mentioned, Caitlin McKechnie, the The singer who connected us spoke so highly of Kirsten and listening to her music on YouTube, we knew that the text would be in very good hands. 
I wonder if we could now listen to another very lyrical, very powerful song, which you've mentioned already, Sit and Sew. And that has this woman asking, why must I sit and sew? As you said, Susan, it's this sort of frustration that she feels. She talks about it as a useless task while men folk lie in the mud. And there's this really strong sense in this song that everyone's life is on pause. What everyone is doing is useless, not just women, but men too. But also this sense of distance between men and women's experiences of war. Susan, you mentioned that the words were written by the Black American poet and political activist Alice Dunbar Nelson. Is there anything else you want to say about the song before we, we have a listen? Just I'd like to quote from a essay that Dunbar Nelson wrote that was part of the official history of the American Negro in the World War, where she talks about praising Black women for their war service, but also for their persistent hope in the face of discrimination. And she wrote, she shut her eyes to past wrongs and present discomforts and future uncertainties. She stood large-hearted, strong-handed, clear-minded, splendidly capable, and did not her bit, but her best. And the world is better for her work and her worth. So she's really talking about Black American certainly nurses that were not allowed to go over and nurse black soldiers over in Europe. And she's talking about the discrimination that she knew black soldiers faced, but she's specifically talking about the, the, the rage she feels um, and the frustration that black women were not allowed to participate in this war as their white counterparts were. So this is one moment, I think, in the opera which really fulfills Susan's desire, not just to show women's voices, but to really counter that white male monopoly on how we remember World War I. So let's listen now to Sit and Sew. I sit and sew A useless task it seems
the way it finishes as well it finishes um in an almost unresolved way doesn't it yeah i mean i tried to leave a lot of space like she's just sitting there waiting for something to happen in the music and that's why you have all these empty (laughs) moments of silence and then you know occasionally i tried to make it lead up to a critical moment where she just can't handle it anymore there she is still sitting (laughs) still waiting I think one question I have in particular after this song, but it's something that um, we've sort of been talking about a little bit uh, in the course of the interview, is that's about the impact that your opera might have beyond giving a voice, making those voices heard. Um, and I, I don't necessarily mean in terms of an, uh, an agenda as such that goes beyond putting those words to music, um, but many of these letters obviously ask for a response. They're exhortative, they raise questions, they want you to do something. Um, And many of the issues that come up in these letters are issues that we are dealing with again today, and we're still dealing with today. So the question I have is, so what, what do you think is about kind of the potential of your opera to have an impact beyond the music, the art, beyond the the immediate work of art that you've produced in terms of how we commemorate World War One, but also in terms of maybe we start rethinking the ways in which we deal with issues of the present. Is that something that you're thinking about a lot? I certainly was in terms of setting the music. I think a lot of my music does that where I want to start conversations and hopefully those conversations will lead to some enlightenment and perhaps some action taken. Um, A lot of my community artwork is involved with that. And in that regard, I've actually seen people's lives change through the music. So I think a lot of it is just being able to start the conversation and have people reflect on these ideas and how it might relate to their lives. You know, one thing about music that I think is really important is that it engages our brains. You know, all this recent fMRI imaging of people listening to music shows that your cognitive areas of your brain light up, your emotional areas light up, memory, like there are all these things going into the experience that you have when you're listening to music. And I think that there's a lot of power in that and that it requires you to bring your own experiences. I mean, that happens with all art, you respond to it. But I think in music, especially because it's immersive, it's in real time. Like you said, I'm kind of guiding you through the experience as the composer and the musicians, of course, are too. So I think in that way, being able to reflect upon how you respond (laughs) is an important part of this. So I think having Q&A after the concert would be a big thing too, or just being able to continue those conversations beyond the artistic utterance itself. I think you're touching on a theme that keeps coming up in our podcast interviews with artists, with theatre makers, the power of different art forms. We had a fantastic interview a couple of days ago with a, a photojournalist, for example, the power of his, the images that he creates to encourage people to stop and pause and look at something differently, think about something differently, essentially visualise things differently. And this opera for me is radically changing the way I'm visualising 
World War One, particularly, Susan, I think, with the way you're stretching my understanding of the, the layers of racism or racial inequality, and then all the different landscapes that we see people in, in munitions factories, in their own homes knitting, not just on the battlefield in mud. Susan, do you want to come in a, a bit and talk about the impact that you're wanting this opera to have? Oh, absolutely. And I would just start by going back to the theater piece, Messengers of a Bitter Truth, which we performed in high schools here. So students were anywhere between 14 and 18. And we did always have an audience talk back. It was part of our vision for how the piece would unfold. And what was so interesting was to listen to young people talk about what aspects of the theater piece touch them. And I'm also thinking of when we did a master class at Boston Arts Academy, which is Boston's arts high school here where I live. And we did I Sit and Sew and Brianna was with us. And Boston Arts Academy is predominantly young people of color. And for young women especially to see a woman of color singing classical music was incredibly powerful. And what it brought out in their comments, as they did in the chat, they were absolutely blown away by the power of it. We really do want to ask, well, again, not only why war, why this war, but where are the missing voices? And I think we are trying very hard to bring some of those missing voices into this opera. I think we've got time for one more song with, again, someone else's voice. So the opera has a chronology in that it ends with the end of the war. So the penultimate song is the announcement of the ceasefire in, in a song called Finally. And then the very final song, um, which I think is one of my favourites, looks back on the war from the perspective of peace. And it's adapted from a poem by American poet Sarah Teelsdale, There Will Come Soft Rains. And it reflects that nature continues on, that spring will come again, that animals will flourish and not know of the war. And in some ways, I think it captures a sense of a world healing, but it also captures a picture, I think, of a world forgetting. And I think that's one of the interesting things about it. Trees, 
one of the things that I love about the, the the song is the way the voices actually fade out in the end and it ends up fading to silence with the sort of violin slide at the end. What were you trying to communicate as you closed the opera with this? Well, I think what I was going for at the beginning of the song with that cello, it's sort of turbulent. It's still not settled yet. And I was even imagining um, the sound of almost like a a swinging gate in the wind kind of creaking. It's actually a really hard cello part to play. So (laughs) she does a great job. Um, But I, I really wanted this still the sense of turbulence to happen with the singer sort of floating above it and, you know, having more of a overall outlook reflecting on what has just happened texturally that's what I was imagining in terms of the beginning of the song and when they all come in and sing together they sing in unison the final line I wanted everything to come together at the end and I mean the words that they're saying that we were gone makes sense to me to sort of just fade out as a a way of releasing that note the sort of outro music is meant to continue the turbulence like this isn't over the slide at the end is specifically more of an exhale I think like we finally finished you know we made it to the end I think that's what I was imagining there with that little glissando leading to the end I really wanted to bring across the point that it doesn't really have a resolution we're still dealing with a lot of these issues there's still senseless war abounding throughout the world and in this particular poem it's about the world's going to go on without us regardless. All of what we're doing, all of the suffering we're causing one another is kind of irrelevant in the grand scheme of things. And so I think I just, I couldn't f- end the song with just their chord leaving us in this blissful place. It's not over yet. <laughs> that definitely also chimes with a theme that has come up also in some other conversations we've been having on, on the podcast, in the interviews about when do wars end, which is actually quite a complicated question because obviously at some point there is an official end to war, but the issues, as you were saying, Kirsten, they often go on, uh, the suffering goes on, uh, people's lives have been changed forever, and you know pe- people continue to deal with the aftermath of wars for, well, sometimes for generations. And you know, here we are, we are still thinking about World War One, and we're still dealing with World War One in, in so many ways. And as we were saying also at the beginning of the, of the conversation today, we are actually rewriting our approach to World War One. We are, we are telling very different stories about World War One now, and there's no end in sight to that, to that process. So I think this is a wonderful way of um, of, uh, of of ending the opera. Is this you know this question mark that's behind it? This openness where yes, it's it's over, but is it really? I also think that it is a perfect ending because it puts people, and specifically the men who fought the war, but more importantly the older men who ordered people to war into a much greater context. So into the earth, into nature, as you said before, Alice, in Messengers of a Bitter Truth, we used a very similar ending with Carl Sandburg's poem, Grass. And it too talks about how nature comes and reclaims the earth and cleanses the earth, if you will. And it's interesting if you are in Northern France and you can juxtapose the photography from the First World War and the trenches and the devastation and then look at it now and yet the scars are still there. You can still see where the trenches were and that's not just in Europe. You can see it wherever wars are fought. 
So it is a, it's a universal ending in that there is no ending. And it, it really is time that we all thought about conflict and how to resolve it. And also, what is our place on this earth? So I, I guess the, the next question I have based on that is about, you know, the further communicating with more people. So after COVID, what is going to happen? How are you going to bring the opera to even more people? I mean, as we said, there's a fantastic website where you can listen to the opera. There's also uh, video clips that show the performance of the opera. So that's wonderful. But I guess um, you're, you're probably eager to go back on tour. So what are the plans for after COVID? We had originally planned pre-COVID to workshop the piece in July of last year and then premiere it in November, both in New York. Our current thinking, and fingers crossed, that we might be able to workshop the piece in August of this year in New York, again, pandemic dependent. And then we're hoping to premiere it next spring, I believe not in New York, in another city in the United States. And we've already, I think maybe Kirsten can talk to that, we've already had interest from opera companies in this country, but we're also, because it is so universal, we are also hoping that opera companies in other parts of the world will be interested in performing it. And the one thing I would like to say is that One of the things to me that makes this opera unusual is the universal nature of it. So it isn't from a United States perspective or it isn't from a UK perspective, but it is truly universal. And I think that in and of itself makes it unusual. There are also rumors of us maybe performing it at the dedication of the new World War I Museum in DC when it opens in 2024, but no promises there yet. Just <laughs> exciting potential. <laughs> well, it, it certainly deserves to get a very wide audience, as you say, all around the globe. Letters you will not get, women's voices from the Great War, really fills a void. It's a silence, the silence of women, but the silence of all sorts of different kinds of women from all around the world and the silence of ordinary people that multitude of perspectives, as we've seen, sometimes coming together in harmony, sometimes clashing slightly or having different perspectives. I remember reading, Susan, when I was looking into your opera, that one of the things that perhaps sort of prompted you to really move forward with it was this sort of Sigrid Pursun poem, The Glory of Women, which expresses this great bitterness towards women who, in his view, couldn't begin to understand what men went through in the war. And in Letters You Will Not Get, actually, you see a really fantastic answer to that, which is, well, women can understand, but can you understand, can everyone understand what women went through as well? You know, this opera is really, as I said before, really stretching my habits of looking back on World War One and has the potential to stretch everyone's habits, I think, and to prompt us to reflect, as you said, on war more generally, and on our tendency to remember only select bits of wars as well, wars from the past. So it's doing very important work in revisualizing World War One from fresh perspectives, but also getting us to look hard at our habits of visualizing war more generally. So thank you both so much for coming on the podcast and sharing that with us. Thank you for having us. <laughs> thank you for having me. Yes, thank you, Susan and Kirsten, so much for coming on the show. I've greatly enjoyed the conversation. It was absolutely fascinating. And thanks for talking to us about your experiences of retelling World War One through music and words.
And you listeners, we hope you have enjoyed this episode as much as we have. If you want to find out more about Letters You Will Not Get, Women's Voices from the Great War, you can visit the American Opera Project website, where you can see more of the opera and listen to more clips. Thank you, as always, for listening. And do tune in again next week when we'll be joined by Professor Kate McLaughlin, an expert in English literature based at the University of Oxford. Kate has done lots of research into war writing in many different historical periods from the ancient world to the present day. And she's currently writing a literary history of silence. So we'll be asking her about ways in which silences, as well as words and music, can help us visualize and understand conflict. And if you would like to support our project, please share and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use so you don't miss an episode. And please do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts as that really helps people find the show. And if you would like to join the conversation further, you can follow us on social media, just search for Visualizing War, or get in touch directly by emailing us at viswar at saintandrews.ac.uk. Our theme music was composed by Jonathan Young. The show was mixed by Zafir Gertin. Thank you for listening.